from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Rich Pellegrino a Baha'i who discovered the Baha'i faith when he was steeped in the hippie culture with all its attendant activities both positive and negative. I started the interview by asking Rich where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in an island off the coast in the Atlantic up north called New York City. <laughs> and, uh, and when I was about five years old, we moved out to Long Island. And as soon as I was old enough to know better, I moved up to the Catskills and Adirondacks myself. But what was it like growing up there? It was during the 60s, the turbulent 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. I was of the generation that threw off the shackles of the past and explored new realms in many different ways, positive and negative, mm-hmm. known as the, the hippie love generation. And I was fully uh, involved in that because I came from a Italian-American family that was quite conservative. My father was a Marine, New York City policeman, and they were the enemy. So I I descended into all the negatives of it, as well as the positives. Drugs, drug use, drug dealing, and and the activism, which was on the positive side. Now, did you always have an antagonistic relationship with your parents? Uh, From the age of about 12 to 19, we were apart most of the time, because that was that period. And interestingly enough, I was introduced into the whole subculture at the resort for policemen's kids up in the Catskill Mountains, <laughs> because all the policemen's kids were the biggest drug dealers, and, you know, they were the, right. the biggest rebels. And so I was inducted into that. And so for that whole period of my adolescence, basically, pre-adolescence and adolescence, mm-hmm. we were at odds, sometimes violently, right. and I was on the road quite a bit, hitchhiking around the country. Starting at what age? At the age of uh, 13, I was out of the house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, back and I I came back for periods and was out and so forth. Yeah, yeah. It was a turbulent time, but at the same time, it was a, there were a lot of good things going on, too. Right. I mean, you could travel the whole country by sticking your thumb out and not worry about who picked you up. And, you know, there was a camaraderie and it, it it was a, you know, a different time. Right. What were you like just before 11? Just a normal uh, New York Catholic Italian kid, mm-hmm. firstborn, the, the pride of my uh, family, mm-hmm. uh, firstborn of four, after my mother had a hard time having any children. She had many miscarriages and then took thalidomide, so I was a thalidomide baby. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, luckily, uh, I only came out half crazy. Oh, my God. And then she had three others. So Yeah, and so, they were healthy, too. Yeah, everybody was healthy, yeah. and, and uh, we had, you know, a pretty typical kind of Archie Bunker, yeah. all-in-the-family type, you know, growing up life. And my father was, you know, the conservative Archie Bunker, and yeah. later on in life, through dealings with all of my changes, 
became the liberal Archie Buck. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yep. So they, the whole family grew kind of together. Yeah. So this turning point at 11 years old, do you think it was because you were exposed to whatever you were exposed up at that resort in the Catskills, or do you think uh, you were going to go in that direction regardless? Probably. Uh, I would have gone regardless, but I, it, there was a lot of environmental things. But firstborns are always under a lot of pressure to mm. succeed and, you know, mm. excel and so forth. So there's some of that always involved. It was, yeah. it was really the age of 12, not 11. Another oh, yeah. part of it was I was an athlete, football, wrestler, and so forth in junior high. The drug of choice for athletes was alcohol, mm. even to the point that our coach brought in screwdriver, vodka, and orange juice before wrestling matches for us to drink. So we, we were encouraged to abuse and use, you know, substances. Right. Uh, there right. was just different substances. So we, right. our generation, decided to use different substances. Right. But, uh, but yeah, it was just the time and, and probably my peer pressure and me wanting to be excel in, in my parents' eyes. And sure. Now, you started dealing drugs between 11 and th- 12, and 12 and 15? Yeah, between 12 and the age of 18, right. I was selling drugs. Uh, that's really what I was inducted into because yeah. the cops' kids were the biggest drug dealers because they were immune from being arrested. No cop would arrest in New York City another cop's kid. Mm. So I wasn't one of the ones smart enough to just sell them. I used every one of them and became addicted to every drug there was at the time, heroin, cocaine, barbiturates. Uh, luckily, it was not crack, otherwise I probably would have been dead. Mm. A lot yeah. of my friends did die or became permanently mentally ill or were incarcerated. So you said at 13 you you headed out of the house and across the country? Right. Yeah, yeah I, I went to Miami and different places. Mm-hmm. Pretty much followed the movement, followed the Grateful Dead, and you know, just traveled with various things, with the civil rights groups, just hooked onto any wagon that was go- yeah. you know, going in a direction I felt was positive and upward. So there were these two currents going on. It was largely a, an identity-seeking time mm-hmm. for everybody to try to find a new identity. There was a lot of anarchy involved in that, but at the, which was the drug use and abuse. Mm-hmm. And interesting statistics that I learned later, we were protesting the Vietnam War, and yet more people died in the U.S. from drug abuse during that time than died on the battlefield. How <laughs> ironic. Yeah. Yeah. When I became a drug counselor later, I learned that mm. statistic. Yeah. So do you have any interesting stories to tell during our travels during that time? I tell my kids they're in my bedtime. So <laughs> <laughs> try, not, try not to glorify the, the, the drug bars. Don't follow my example. <laughs> but but I, I could literally fill a couple of books. And, and I've, I've done speaking tours yeah. right after what happened was one of my friends, uh, Richie Diener, who was in that crowd, his father was a cop too, when his father found out what was going on out of his own house, they had an altercation. His father shot and killed him oh my at the age of about, 13, I think it was 13 or 14. That became a book, and later on a TV movie with Robbie Benson and Ben Gazzara playing the, the father and son. Mm. And I was portrayed in that movie. Oh, really? You know, just as uh, one of the friends. Right. Just a small little thing. About the time when I was coming clean, around 19, 18 or 19, that's when the movie came out. So I started to volunteer drug treatment places and so forth for my own sobriety as well. And when they found out, you know, that the movie was partly about me, I got to speak at college campuses mm. and so forth yeah. about it. I still have a copy of it. It's a boring movie, but I showed it. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, at the at tail end of the drug use, people either went into treatment or jail or into business or into religion, pretty much, because it was, again, an identity seeking. A lot of, a lot of people went into spiritual paths, and it was partly a spiritual search, LSD and all that. Mm-hmm. As I was hitchhiking around the country, there was a big Jesus movement, back to Jesus movement. It was called Jesus Freaks, different, different things, Children of God and so forth. Communes were popping up. We would meet young people who were going home to get all of their life savings, their college savings, or whatever, to give it to God. Mm-hmm. And we said, how is God going to get your money? And they said, well, we just go and volunteer in these communes and, and give you know people come and collect our money. So we, we thought it was kind of weird and cultish. Then finally we got picked up one time in California, we were hitchhiking, by a fellow who said he just got out of the penitentiary and he was Italian, said he was in the underworld and so forth. So he took us out on his yacht in San Diego, and during one of our times, uh, intoxicated times together, he told us some stories. And he said, you know, have you met any children of God, uh, youth? We said, sure, we're meeting them all over the place. He says, well, that's uh, children of God. Is uh, The mafia is uh, delving into religion, setting up religion com- communes. The mafia figured after drugs, religion was going to be big. Hmm. <laughs> and so... Uh, he said, you know, it's a great setup. They come work for free in these farms and communities. They go, come and contribute all their savings. And, and it fit in right with what we had we had, uh, kind of assumed that it was a, some kind of cult. So then uh, we realized he was telling us too much. So as soon as he, he fell asleep, we hopped off the yacht into the dinghy and escaped. Because mm, yeah, right. <laughs> we were just young teenagers. Sure. Yeah. Tell me about your involvement in the civil rights movement. Well, again, it was mixed in with... At that time, it, it was pretty juvenile because it was mixed in with the anti-war and the uh, civil rights and also our own self-identity search. My involvement mainly consisted of marches in mm-hmm. uh, Washington, mm-hmm. where we got arrested at various times for nonviolent, you know, civil disobedience. One time we were, there were so many protesters, and it was mixed with the war, and because Dr. King, of course, came out towards the end of his life against the war as well. Mm-hmm. And so one time there were so many of us arrested that we were put in Washington Redskins Stadium. That was the jail. Mm. Unfortunately, I gave a false name because later on there was a class action lawsuit. Everybody got a little bit of money out of that. But anyway, uh, uh, later on, after I sobered up, cleaned up, and was on more of a spiritual search, I did do some travels in the South, Mm -hmm. you know, with the Freedom Riders. Oh, really? Well, after that. This was later. I see. A little bit later after that, so it was the kind of descendants of the Freedom Riders. Mm-hmm. When I became a Baha'i at the age of 20, the Baha'is in the South were really the first group to have integrated religious services as a practice, just in South Carolina and other places, during Jim Crow times still. And so they were you know, routinely invaded by the KKK and so forth. So you said at 18 you started cleaning up your act. What were the circumstances that led you away <laughs> from the life you were living? total fear because I was faced with nine felonies for selling to undercover agents. Mm-hmm. And I had tried to quit before, you know, tried various things, methadone, all different things to slow down or quit because I realized I was killing myself. But it wasn't until every, they say you have to hit your bottom, and my bottom was facing 63 years in prison. Mm-hmm. I was old enough to be treated as an adult. Then uh, when I was finally caught, even though the, the evidence had been accumulated over several years when I was still a juvenile, but anyway, I went to court after, and you know, in New York and probably just about anywhere, 
you can pay off judges, you can pay off people in the system, you know. And my lawyer, my family, uh, Italian family, paid off whoever they could. And uh, my attorney still came to me and said, you're going to do some time, maybe two or three years, you know. Mm -hmm. We can't get you completely off, basically. Uh, losing freedom was not an option to me in my mind. You know? When I went to court that day, it was the first time that I really, really said a prayer. Basically, I made a deal with God, which I heard you're not supposed to do, but I basically said, if you get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Mm. Uh, you know, I had gone to Catholic church and some Catholic school, but basically just repeated whatever they told me to repeat. wasn't sincere about things. So this is really the first prayer I said. Mm -hmm. And the judge said, to everybody's surprise, I took some time to research your background, found out you come from a good family, you graduated in top 10% of your high school class. I didn't even know that. <laughs> that was the first I was hearing that. You know, God gave you some good brains. I'm going to give you one more chance to use them outside of prison. Five years probation. However, if you get even a misdemeanor charge, drug-related charge during that time, no plea bargaining. You're going to jail for 63 years. I later learned he probably couldn't do that, but mm. that was enough to scare me. Sure. And so I got out of it. Right. Now, I'm a little confused because you said at, what, age 13, you left the house and started traveling across the country. Mm -hmm. How did you finish high school? Again, this was, <laughs> this was the 70s, 60s, and 70s. I would go for a few weeks, come back, go for a few weeks. Let's put it this way. I got two of my high school teachers hooked on drugs. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is the way it was. <laughs> Everything went. I, was the, I ran for class president, and my, my platform was LSD for everybody in the water fountains, you know? I mean, this was, it was just a wild time. Yeah. And, Were you uh, elected? <laughs> no, I lost. <laughs> you know, teachers basically pushed me through. Even though you were the top 10 of the class, they just pushed you through? That? Top 10%. Top 10% still. Yeah, well, I also was smart. I mean, mm -hmm. I, mean I, was, I was good at what I did. I mean, I was, uh, I was always good in school. Interesting. So, uh, my SATs, I, I took intoxicated, and I still Shh. aced them. Unbelievable. Well, what happens with a drug is your body becomes accustomed to a poison. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to perform at yeah. normal, you need that drug. I see. You, you don't realize, though, you're destroying your, your capacity may have been 20%, you're operating at 10%, but to you, you feel like you're doing great. You know? mm. And that's the whole thing. A lot of musicians use drugs, think it enhances their performance. Well, I've always challenged them and said, well, stop using it for a month and, and see what it is, you know. Mm -hmm. Number one, if you can't stop using it, that's a signal. Right. <laughs> you know, do a comparison. Yeah. So after you got a reprieve and God answered your prayer, what did you do? I stopped selling drugs. I continued using. You don't just automatically kick the habit. Mm -hmm. But I did, you know, much more subtly. I mean, I, 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 I tried to stop. I had one of the wives of high school teacher that I had hooked on drugs, and he subsequently left her and shacked up with one of the students. She, her name was Josephine. Mm -hmm. She told me, Rich, you know, I recognize something in you. When you're ready to stop all this nonsense, come to me and I'll teach you something spiritual. And so I went to her and she was into transcendental meditation, mm -hmm. TM, mm -hmm. which the Beatles were into and, met, you know, lots of other people. Yeah. That was the, the introduction of Hinduism, I guess, into our society mm -hmm. uh, in a capitalist way because it's the first Hindus that charged to teach meditation. Right. She, she introduced me to TM, 
I started looking for every kind of alternate lifestyle. I took martial arts, partly because I was still hanging around in unsavory areas, and I didn't want to carry knives or guns anymore. And I never carried guns, but I didn't want to carry knives. So I took martial arts to protect myself nonviolently, and I lucked out and got a Buddhist, a Korean Buddhist, who taught me both the art and the religion. Hmm. Basically, I asked God in that courtroom, and hmm. I made some efforts, and he reached down the rest of the way and started putting these things in my path these opportunities to learn the spiritual side. Mm -hmm. That was gradual. I moved up to the mountains, literally, you know, again, uh, go up to the mountains to find the guru, Mm -hmm. and I went up to the Adirondacks, back to the Adirondacks, to the area where I had first introduced heroin and hard drugs, Mm -hmm. bringing it up from New York City, and I went on my spiritual retreat uh, and moved up there, and uh, I ran into two other people on a spiritual search, and we formed a team. One was an Olympic bobsledder, because we were near Lake Placid where the Olympics were, and another friend from Long Island. And the three of us just lived a reclusive life. We still smoked marijuana, and, you know, that was part of our spiritual thing, too, mm-hmm. we thought. But we avoided the hard drugs, and we um, just read every book, every religious book, the Bible. I mean, we just lived the lives of monks. But separately or together? Together. Okay. And here's the hypocrisy. I mean, I can tell you... Spent hours telling you stories about that spiritual search. I mean, I mean, we practiced a lot of mind control, psychic stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that worked. I mean, all kinds of weird things happened. But anyway, we finally determined that we had learned all we could learn from the books and from our own practices, and that we had to go out and find our spiritual master, our teachers. Mm-hmm. But we needed money to do that, and the only way we knew how to make money was selling drugs. <laughs> so. We, we, we said we're going to do one more big drug deal <laughs> to finance our spiritual search. And Fred, the Olympic bobsledder, was going to Austria for the Olympic trials with the team. One of the other partners had a connection in Morocco to bring hashish, so we can get hashish from Morocco to Austria, and we can bring it in with the Olympic team and with diplomatic immunity. Oh they don't get checked. God. And so we, we hatched this Mission Impossible plan to do all of that. We mm. spent... You know, uh, again, hypocrisy. We spent right. eight hours in a day praying, meditating, studying scripture, and planning a b- drug deal. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, when it came time to go, my partner Richie and I, each one of us had a job. Richie had the money, he had inherited a little money, and when he went to his bank account, it had 500 or 5,000. The bank made a mistake, and he ended up with 50,000, so he took it all out. <laughs> And he had the money to finance us the trip. Uh, Fred was the Olympic bobsledder, and I had the connections here to uh, unload the hash uh, when we came back. So Richie and I went ahead to Europe. We flew to Paris because we wanted to have a good time and also find some spiritual teachers on our way to Morocco. Everywhere we went, God put people in our path to teach us a spiritual path, you know, sect of Hindus, Buddhism, Jesus communities. We met all kinds of people, Muslims. We never told them what our mission was, other than our spiritual search, mm-hmm. um, and worked our way down to Torremolinos, Malaga, Spain, where the boat goes to Morocco. At that time, Torremolinos and Malaga was the center of the youth. A- Amsterdam was in the north of Europe, and Torremolinos and Malaga was where all the youth in Europe and around the world congregated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amsterdam, because you could smoke pot freely, and Torremolinos and Malaga for other reasons, the Riviera and girls, and also all the religious communes concentrated there to try to save people. Mm -hmm. So anyway, long story short, 
We spent a few days there. I wanted to back out of this deal because mm-hmm. when you go to Morocco, we've heard stories, you know, they'll sell you the drugs. You turn around, they shoot you in the back, take the drugs back, you know, all kinds of things. And we, and we were armed, too. We had learned. Oh, uh, my gosh. Fred was a Green Beret. He trained us in small arms. I mean, this was a, it was truly a mission impossible story. Anyway. <laughs> mission improbable. Improbable, <laughs> right. Yeah, I've said that many times. And I wanted to back out. Now this was not becoming, this was no longer a fantasy. This was like life and death. We could get mm. caught, thrown in prison over there for life. You know, I mean, and I wanted to back out, but I didn't want to be the guy to ruin the whole thing. Richie, the, my other partner, was more into Christianity. He came from a Jewish background. He was really enjoying fundamental learning about fundamental Christianity mm-hmm. and the return of Christ and all that. So we, we met a group of what they called Jesus freaks on the beach. They wanted us to come and live in their commune until our boat left in a beautiful hacienda. So we said, sure. And so we went and stayed with them, and they were hard sell and laying mm-hmm. hands on us and all that. Anyway, Richie became converted uh, to a Jesus freak. Mm-hmm. And so that was the end of our deal. He had the money. We had no more money uh, to go to one. <laughs> I was so happy. Yeah. And so they really wanted me because Richie believed in Christianity already. I believed that all the religions were one mm-hmm. right, through my studies. Right. And so they, they figured I was a hard catch. They really wanted to get me. <laughs> and so they asked right before I left to go home back to the States. Richie gave me enough for a plane ticket back. They wanted to lay hands on me in their church. So I said, sure, people can pray for me, I don't mind. So they all got around me, and they wanted to really exercise the demons from me of believing in the oneness of religion. They prayed on me and prayed on me, and I was at a point in my life where, what am I going to do now? I put all of my eggs in this basket of this drug deal. I've got no money. i got nowhere to go. i got no more spiritual search, I mean, for the Master. So I was really at a turning point. Mm. And so I just kept saying to myself, God, do with me what you will. Do with me. I was really at the edge of a nervous breakdown with all these mm. people speaking tongues. I didn't even know what they were saying. I felt like I was losing it, but I, so I just said, God, I'm nothing. I don't know anything, you know? Mm. And I got a vision, not a visual vision, but a thought. If, since you believe that all paths lead to the same God, go back to the States and open up a place where people can study religion mm. and choose their own path. That was it. I got that thought. I got up. I dusted myself off, thanked them for the vision. They hated the vision that they had given me. Got on the plane and went back to Long Island, moved in with my parents. They were happy, you know, that I was on the spiritual search after everything. Well, of course, they thought you were on a spiritual search and not doing a big drug deal in Austria. Right. They didn't know about that. I don't even know if I ever told them that. I I, I think I told them later. My mother had been lighting candles in the church, you know, we're a Catholic family. We have family in the Vatican. We're so Catholic on both sides. Wow. So she had been lighting candles for me. And, you know, they were happy that I'd become a Buddhist, anything other than a <laughs> drug dealer. That's when my father was finally uh, turning liberal. So, so I moved back in with them. I had a student loan because during all this I had gone to some college classes, <laughs> mostly partied at the New Paul's. <laughs> different places like that. So I just moved in with them and, and got a job to save money to open up this place of religious study, uh, my new mission in life. Mm-hmm. I got a job in a motel, two jobs. Anyway, I opened up the newspaper. This was 75. I was 20. And I opened up the newspaper and saw a Baha'i Fireside advertised in Roslyn, New York, which I was suspicious of because Roslyn was a rich area and I'm a hippie still, you know, mm-hmm. with long hair and earrings and I was riding a motorcycle even then. Hmm. My grandmother bought me a motorcycle. 
just because I was being such a good boy. Then. And so I said, well, you know, I need to find out about all religions if I'm going to have a place. I never heard of Baha'i. Mm. It was on Saturday night. I work Saturday night, so I clipped it out, and I said, well, if I ever get a Saturday night off, I'll go to this far side. Mm. just so happened somebody came in that week and said, will you switch with me and work Sunday, and I'll work your Saturday. So I said, sure. So I went to the far side. I was suspicious, and I went with my jeans with holes in the pants and everything. Mm. And I went up to this big house. Uh, Weird-looking foreigners opened the door, and they were Persians. <laughs> they were very gracious. And uh, when I looked in the room, it was every kind of person, even a f- few people that looked like me, not many, but <laughs> it was pretty diverse. That night, youth were giving the talk, mm-hmm. and which was perfect for me, about people about my age. I sat and listened, and the Persian lady came out. These are my, now my spiritual parents, the Sia Pushes, Ishmael and Faraday Sia Push, who are still in Roslyn, Long Island. At the end, Faraday came out and says, we just prepared a little snack for you, and then she pulled these louver doors back in our table as long as you could see with every kind of delicacies on it. Mm-hmm. A typical Persian hospitality. Yeah. And I felt warmth and acceptance there, but I was still suspicious. You know, I was the most avid seeker there, so they asked me at the end, well, what do you think? And I told them, I says, this is w- perfect. I believe in all of this anyway. So what did they say in the meeting? I'm sure it was about the oneness, is, the oneness of God, the oneness of humanity, and the oneness of religion, mm-hmm. because I identified with that. Right. But, and so what I told them was, you got the, all these weird names. Baha'i and Baha'i. Yeah, I mean, no American's going to adopt this. <laughs> so it's not a real them, good PR campaign. <laughs> yeah. So my suggestion to the whole fireside, there was a lot of people, was you guys are great, you got the truth, you know, I'm telling them this, but instead of this new religion, just all of you join Christianity or Islam and reform it, you know, mm-hmm. because it's already accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you got the truth, the essence of it, you know. Mm-hmm. They were wise enough not to argue with me or anything. They just smiled, and they handed me a bunch of books, and they showed me love. And in between that and the next fireside, which was at another Persian doctor's house, I read, and I I just read a few pages or a few sections, and I was a believer. Really? Yeah, I mean, I knew. Yeah. Basically, it told me, sure, what Muslims are going to join the Christians, or what Christians are going to join the Muslim religion. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to have a new... New name, new religion, you know, with all of the same spiritual truths. And that, you know, was confirmed in everything. That, that basically, God and Baha'u'llah kicked my butt and told me what the way it's got to be. Mm. So at the next meeting, probably about a month later, I declared my belief in Baha'u'llah. Mm. And that was uh, 1975, in June of 1975. What was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? They didn't understand Buddhism or Hinduism. But they were happy again of anything spiritual that I was doing. Uh, one interesting side note: I was off probation. Remember, I had five years probation mm. during the time when I moved up to the Adirondacks and was studying different religions. I had to report to my probation officer monthly, you know, down in Long Island. And every time I went, I taught him about a different religion that I was studying. And he was a, you know, he was a guy. He wasn't interested in religion. He was a young guy. He liked partying. He got sick and tired of me trying to convert him to different religions, so he cut me loose for probation early. <laughs> so, but anyway, so my parents were, uh, were impressed with you yeah. know my, my new path. And yeah. later, I went very quickly. Within a year's time, the Baha'is sent me back to the Adirondacks as a, a pioneer to open up that region to the Baha'i faith. 
a pioneer in the Baha'i faith is like a missionary in Christianity, except that we're self-supporting and we live among the people. I didn't know what pioneer meant. I didn't know what teaching meant. But they just saw my audacious quality, you know, that I grew up in the streets, basically. I knew how to take care of myself and that I had connections in that region, even mm-hmm. though they were more drug connections. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, we need that region open. So they mm-hmm. packed me up in my motorcycle and sent me pioneering. Yeah. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. Why is that? Because I was forced. I couldn't get comfortable. Sometimes you find a new thing, mm-hmm. your religion, what you've been searching for, and you just become complacent. It's the mm-hmm. end of your search, so you settle down, yeah. when really it's a time to be activist, to mm-hmm. go and share it with others. And, mm-hmm. and I couldn't be complacent because I was the only one, you know, there. And I had to, if people ask me, well, what are you doing here? I'd tell them I'm Baha'i, you know, and, yeah. and so forth. So what's that? Well, then I had to figure out what to tell them, and I had to go to the book. So I became a Baha'i teacher immediately mm-hmm. and was confirmed uh, very quickly in the faith. Even t- times the mystical experience would happen where people would ask me questions. I'd answer it and not knowing if I was telling them the right thing and then go back to the books and say, wow, I said the right thing. So that's part of the mystical part of teaching religion is that you're, if, when you hollow out your own self, you become a channel mm-hmm. you know, for the spirit. So that really confirmed me fast. And mm-hmm. before I went up there, I had started volunteering for 24-hour crisis centers, you know, where people call in if they have drug problems or suicidal. And so I said, well, why don't I open up as a service to the community and to prove that I'm, everybody suspected me, including the police chief up there in Saranac Lake, that this Baha'i was just another cover for my drug dealing. Mm. It's yeah. a small town. So they remember you? Oh, they knew me, yeah. yeah. It was very provincial. Many people had never been 30 miles to the next town. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. People talk about the South being rural. Mm-hmm. New York is as rural or more rural, you know, many parts of New York than mm-hmm. even the South. Mm-hmm. You know, some people had never seen a black person except on TV. This is in the 70s, mm-hmm. up, up in the Adirondacks in New York. Yeah. Kind of like deliverance right. in some ways. I said, well, why don't I open up a 24-hour crisis center as a service to the community? Mm-hmm. So I found a little storefront for 75 bucks a month. I got a great job, by the way, as a night shift at a hotel, so I could sleep half of the night and, and have time during the day to do my Baha'i stuff and mm-hmm. community service stuff. And so I opened up a storefront, combination 24-hour crisis center and Baha'i center, like a Christian science reading room type thing, mm-hmm. and put books in the windows and everything. This was a totally new concept within the faith, Baha'i faith and, and also up in those areas. Mm-hmm. It attracted a lot of attention, good and bad. <laughs> I had people come in, you know, telling me I'm going to hell, and mm. I had rednecks who wanted to beat me up, and I had mm. me, and I had everything, you know, yeah. because I was right out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was used to dealing with everybody, and I was, you know, non-judgmental towards most. Mm-hmm. Eventually, uh, uh, a whole Baha'i community grew around that center. Mm. You know, people walked in. God sent in people, and we had the most, one of the most diverse communities. Well, anybody who was divert, there was only like one black in the town, one Latino, you know, one from different countries. So they all became Baha'is because now they had a support group. You know? Yeah, right. And so we had a, a great success. We opened up a chain of those storefronts. You know, we had a lot of success growing the faith and learning a lot mm-hmm. in that region in those days in the 70s. Yeah. So how long were you in the Adirondacks? I was there from 76 to... 79, mm-hmm. and I pioneered on an Indian reservation, the Mohawk Indian Reservation, or Aquasasne, it's 
called in the Mohawk language. Where's that? That is on the border of New York and Ontario, near Lawrenceville, uh, right on the St. Lawrence uh, River. Mm-hmm. And I've lived many places in the Caribbean. I've lived all over the U.S. And to this day, uh, that has been, I would say, the premier experience of my life. I went there to teach. I went there to be a drug and alcohol counselor. I went there to teach Baha'i religion. And I walked out of there learning more than I could ever contribute mm. from the from the Mohawks, from the Native American people. Mm. It's just a watershed time in my life. And if I decide to stay in this country, I will bury my bones on a reservation. It's the same experience as living anywhere else in the world, overseas. You know? mm-hmm. But even more so because of the high station of Native American and tribal peoples in the Baha'i writings. Mm-hmm. They'll spiritually illuminate the whole earth. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just phenomenal people that rely on the spirit. Mm-hmm. They were totally misunderstood by the Christian missionaries. They were thought to have worshipped the sun, the stars, the moon, and pantheistic type religion. Mm-hmm. But it was not that at all. They were giving thanks to the one God, to the Creator, for everything, mm-hmm. even the, what they hunted. Mm. Their religion, in one word, is thankfulness. Mm. That's where my heart is. And, and my wife is part Amerindian, so, so are my kids. The Baha'i writings, they really talked about two special races <clears throat> or cultures, because really we've come to know that there is no such thing as race. Race is an illusion. Mm. Geneticists have now proven that there's more genetic variation within the so-called races than between them. Mm-hmm. So we know that it's more cultural differences. The people of African descent are likened in the Baha'i writings, of course, to the uh, pupil of the eye through which the light streameth forth. You know, my kids tell me I'm a wannabe black and a wannabe Native American because my kids are black and, and Native American. <laughs> my wife is Caribbean and she mm-hmm. has all four races. You know. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that I love to be around, to learn from, and I try to share whatever I can to help as well, especially on the social and economic development side. But in terms of spirituality, I learn from them how to rely on God. Mm-hmm. You know, Just to give you an example, the other day I was teaching in a rural area of, of Georgia, and a, a man walked down the road who was uh, you know, apparently disheveled and homeless, we were in the neighborhood visiting and telling people about the Baha'i faith, and uh, we were tired and ready to go home. He asked us what we were doing. We really didn't want to tell him we were tired. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> well, I just said, you know, I figured I figured he was mentally disturbed or something anyway, so I just put him off. And, and uh, by the way, that's all my prejudice coming up. Sure. My prejudices, I realize now. I told him we're teaching people about God, about the oneness of God, oneness of religion, oneness of humanity, and it's through the Baha'i religion that we're teaching that. Somebody, one of my partners came up, a lady, Deb, and said, what do you think about God? And this man said, God is the all-merciful. And I, all of us looked up and jumped out of our weariness and surrounded him to meet him, to share the Baha'i message, and to learn from him. Mm. Because here's somebody who's way down on his luck, and he's telling us, God is merciful. Mm. You know, in that circumstance, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't sure. be able to say that. You know, so I would probably be blaming God even after 30 years of being a Baha'i, you know, right. because, you know, I just wasn't brought up to rely on spiritual things. You know. right. yeah. I have to practice that, you know, daily. Yeah. That's what I get from being among these cultures. Right. So how long were you at the reservation? I was at the reservation only, uh, only a year. Mm-hmm. Baha'is don't believe in proselytizing. 
pushing our religion on anyone, but sharing it as we share any gift and enabling people to independently investigate. Now, some people independently investigate using their mind and intellect, and some people use their heart. Different mm -hmm. people, you know, left brain or right brain. Mm -hmm. That's something we're learning now, that you don't have to thrust a lot of books on people. Some people right away can determine the truth of what people are saying. That's what I learned from the Native Americans and African Americans, how they can discern spiritual truth without a lot of intellectual investigation. But anyway, so I was there for a year, and that plan was to uh, establish a Baha'i local spiritual assembly in that year. Since we don't have clergy, that's the administrative guiding body for the Baha'i community, and it's elected, nine people elected from among all the believers every year as uh, servant leaders of the community, unpaid you know, volunteer service. And so uh, we wanted to establish that in, uh, on that reservation, one local assembly, and it had to be of Native Americans because non-Native Americans could not live on the reservation. Again, God provided us a house, a farm, one house off of the reservation. In other words, we, our land bordered the reservation mm -hmm. that we rented. And so we were right there. And the Mohawks, if anyone knows the Mohawks, they're the people, they're not the passive Native Americans. <laughs> they're the aggressive ones. They're the steel workers, the ones who built all the skyscrapers in America, the ones who are fearless that walk the beams. Okay, that's the kind of uh, people the Mohawks are. Mm -hmm. So we walked into a malastrom. Right then, the uh, Mormons were there, mm -hmm. the traditional Native American religionists, mm -hmm. political parties, every kind of uh, disunifying factor was there, all fighting over the people's allegiance on that uh, reservation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they were fighting with gun battles. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah, shooting. We didn't know this when we went there. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, the Baha'is have a way of uniting everybody sometimes against the Baha'is. <laughs> so all of a sudden the Baha'is were the new threat because the Baha'is teach we're all one. Right. Not one is above the other, and that's a threat if you believe your particular faith or, or party or whatever is above the other. We became the targets. Mm -hmm. We had to have round-the-clock protection. And because when I was in Saranac Lake, I made friends with the faith keeper, Mr. Ray Fadden, of the Iroquois, not just of the Mohawk, but of all six nations of the Iroquois, He's the faith keeper who keep all, keeps all the ancient traditions. And he uh, adopted me like a son because I was willing to go learn and listen to him. Mm -hmm. And not too many young Indians or Native Americans were. He uh, almost ad adopted me like a son and taught me. And I became so knowledgeable in the Iroquois uh, traditions. And they in invited me to the longhouse ceremonies and so forth. They, they called me a Wapaho, an Italian Indian. Wap, they call Italians Wap. So I was kind of like their mascot. They picked on me a lot. But, uh, but I got in. He, he wasn't too fond of me going up to the reservation and teaching Baha'i because of all the other religions there that we would be thrown into them or whatever. But uh, I, I did it with his uh, great, uh, graces anyway. And so we had this protection. So he dispatched medicine men and so forth to surround our house and do ceremonies the, the leader of the traditional Indians, the ones who wanted to get back to their traditional roots and religion, asked me if we had a barn, if he could store his hay for his animals in the winter in our barn, since we weren't farming or using the farm that we were renting. And I said, sure, please do. And so he filled up our barn with hay. Well, one of his deputies, who was very radical and militant and violent, 
didn't like the Baha'is or any of the other religions, and so he torched our barn. Oh, my God. Uh, or had it torched. One day we came home, and our barn was in flames, and the fire department was there, whatever. He did not know that his chief's hay <laughs> was in our barn. <laughs> Just to show how things work, what goes around comes around. Really? What we learned was God protects. If you just put mm. your right foot forward mm-hmm. and arise, then and trying to do the right thing, God protects you. Mm. And things happen that make everything work out the way it's supposed to be. Mm. So at the end of one year, we did have an all-Native local assembly mm-hmm. uh, on that reservation. Mm. You know, I learned to rely on spiritual protection and know that it works. Right. You know? so, so. And where'd you go? I went to Plattsburgh, New York, not far from there, on Lake Champlain, mm-hmm. to finish my bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Through all of this, when I was in Saranac Lake, a community college there I, awarded me a two-year degree. I took a few courses, but they basically gave me credits because I helped them set up a drug counseling program on campus. Because oh, I was the drug expert, you know, <laughs> the drug counseling expert. <laughs> and so uh, I, I went to finish my, try to get a bachelor's. Mm-hmm. and uh, Plattsburgh. During this time, I heard about what was starting up again in the south of the U.S., among the African-American rural communities, that the faith was starting to grow by leaps and bounds. And so I went to a conference in South Carolina on a school break. I fell in love with the south. I fell in love with what was happening there, and I fell in love with a black southerner, southern lady, Baha'i lady. Mm. So I moved to South Carolina. And I did not finish my, my bachelor's there. And in the Baha'i faith, one must get consent to get married from both all living parents because we're trying to bring unity to the world and it starts with the family. Mm-hmm. And so two people marrying or two families marrying. We then began the, the arduous task of getting consent from both sides of an interracial marriage. My family, believe it or not, was more agreeable to it than hers. <laughs> Amazing. We spent a year trying to get consent, and it did not work out on her side. Mm. And so we reluctantly parted temporarily. Mm-hmm. I went to Florida because I had a job opportunity there, a business opportunity. While I was in Florida, some Baha'is came from Guyana and the Caribbean recruiting pioneers for the Caribbean and for Guyana. Mm-hmm. My business partner saw my eyes get wide while I watched the, they brought a movie about the island Baha'i faith was growing in the Caribbean and Guyana particularly in Guyana and he saw my eyes get big and we were just about to sign a contract for his business deal and he said you better go down there take a trip to the Caribbean and Guyana and get that out of your system before we do this business because <laughs> I can see you're being drawn to that mm. I did I went I took a trip down to St. Lucia and I fell in love again with the people with the everything Mm-hmm. The doors opened up for me. I had no money. My whole life, you know, I was a hippie. I didn't care about my I lived day to day. When I hitchhiked around the country, I lived on loaf of bread and peanut butter or something. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care about physical, material things ever. But I went down there literally with a backpack, and that was it, everything I owned. Mm-hmm. No money, no degree, no way that you're supposed to be able to get into a country because Typically, you can't go to a country and work there unless you have a degree or have something, money or something to contribute, mm. which is fair because there's not many jobs there. They don't want foreigners taking their jobs. So everybody told me, all the Baha'is in America, the institutions, everybody told me, you can go, but you're not going to be able to stay there and pioneer. Mm-hmm. 
I went and I met with the National Baha'i Assembly there in the Caribbean, which is the national, the body that's elected of nine to guide the affairs in each Baha'i country mm. that's voted uh, every year. When I told my story about how I've been discouraged, half of the National Assembly there were Caribbean-born and half were from uh, U.S., England, and Canada, pioneers who made that their home. Mm. I was wondering why they started grinning and looking at each other while I was telling my story. And so at the end, I said, why are you laughing? They said, well, all of us were told the same things. No, no <laughs> we're <way>. discouraged <laughs> and everything. We came down with nothing, you know. And look, we've been here for, you know, decades, and we've made lives here, so don't worry about it. If God wants you here, the doors will open. If not, don't worry about it. You know? yeah. Within a couple of months, I was offered the opportunity to open up a restaurant, half Italian, half West Indian restaurant that would be 51% owned by a West Indian Baha'i, St. Lucian Baha'i which is what the law requires, that it's owned mm -hmm. locally. Mm -hmm. So I went back home. I had no money, so I didn't want to be a sloucher, so I went back to Florida. I said, I'm going to go back for two or three months, work three jobs, and save up enough money to do my part in this restaurant. Mm -hmm. Went back to South Florida and worked around the clock and saved up a bunch of money. And went back there, and we were about to open the restaurant, and then somebody said, let's go to St. Vincent for summer school, like a Bible camp in the summer, except Baha'i summer school. Mm -hmm. We hopped on a plane, went to St. Vincent. That was August of 82. I met at that summer school my current wife of 25 years, Vesta, who was from the first Baha'i family in St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. And St. Vincent is one of the few countries in the world that started a Baha'i community with absolutely no outside intervention. One of her aunts traveled on a holiday to Grenada and Guyana, learned about the faith, and came back, and they started the Baha'i community. Yeah. They called it the Baha'i Church. By October of 82, I was married to Vesta mm -hmm. after two months of a whirlwind courtship. <laughs> <laughs> and that's 25 years ago and eight children ago. We have eight children. Oh, my gosh. What a blessing. Of all shades and colors. Because mm. her family, she has from every, quote, race. She's got European. She's got Asian. Because in the Caribbean, for 200 years, all the races have intermarried. Mm. You know, she's got Amerindian, Carib. Indian and black African. We stayed there for six years, had our first three kids. Oh, by the way, my uh, former fiance in Florida, I wrote and asked her permission basically to get uh, married because we sweet. were still hoping to get consent, you know. Yeah. And she said, yeah, go ahead. I don't want to hold you back. And she had found somebody too. Okay. She married him. I married her. And later on, years later, the two couples got together and hung out Florida to go. Mm. So by ob obeying, we, we all fulfilled our goals. When I got to the Caribbean, I had goals. I always wanted to be in business for myself. I wanted to marry interracially. I wanted to, or interculturally, I wanted to have my own counseling practice, you know, drug mm. treatment and so forth. Mm. All these things in the States, you need advanced degrees and licenses, whatever. In the Caribbean, within six months, every single life goal was fulfilled. Mm. Every single one. I had. I owned a chain of grocery stores together with other Baha'is. I hung out a shingle, and to this day in St. Vincent, I'm Dr. Pellegrino. It's a title of respect. They don't care what paper qualification you have. I was the only drug counselor on the island. Even the psychiatrist called me Dr. Pellegrino. And I had a wonderful wife and family, and it was all because I obeyed the spiritual mm -hmm. teaching. Mm -hmm. 
and it was very difficult to obey. And I'm not one easy to obey because I came from the 70s, yeah, <laughs> where we right. threw away obedience yeah, to, yeah. to rules and laws. So. Yeah, you've come a long yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. How long were you uh, in St. Vincent? St. Vincent, I was there to six years, mm-hmm. to 88. Came back to the States because my, we, my wife was pregnant with a third child. It was very hard on women there, very difficult. No opportunity for her to get an education, very backwards in terms of, you know, women's rights and so forth. And also having children, uh, three children very quickly, it was hard on her because sometimes the water is turned off. You know, you don't have running water sometimes. You just don't have all the creature comforts. Spiritually, it's great, better than here, almost anywhere else is. But uh, materially, it was difficult for her. And she grew up there, so that's her world, 30 miles in every direction. So I wanted to give her an opportunity to see other places. I bit the bullet. I didn't want to leave paradise at all. Our plan was, well, we'll come to the state for two or three years. She can save up some money or get her education or whatever, and we'll go back and bring something to the island, you know? Mm-hmm. We but we didn't plan on having five more kids, <laughs> so we never did that. We actually did go back. We came back in 88. I hated being here so much that she agreed with me to go back, and we went back, and we only lasted a year because, unfortunately, the islands became bedroom communities to America, sunk into deep materialism, and became almost just like another suburb of the U.S. in very fast pace, which in the Baha'i Rains we've been warned about, that the traditional cultures don't have to descend into the pits of materialism and nationalism and all the isms. If we reach them quick enough with not only the spiritual teachings of the faith, the Baha'i faith or any faith, because they're all the same, the spiritual teachings, but the social and economic development teachings, which are appropriate to this age. So, unfortunately, we didn't do it fast enough in the Caribbean. Guyana, Belize, and places like that, there's places that are still haven't descended all of the way. And some countries uh, in Guyana, uh, very high and significant percentage of the population is Baha'i. Matter of fact, it may become the first Baha'i country in the world, which means that uh, a very small percentage of the people, I forget if it's 1% or 2%, uh, are Baha'i members. However, the Baha'i faith has influenced every aspect of the society. Uh, and, it's, and the society acknowledges that. And in Guyana, the government does acknowledge that and gives land to the Baha'is for health clinics and so forth. Mm. And this is what a lot of American Baha'is don't even understand and realize is the Baha'i faith. If you only know about the Baha'i faith in America, you don't know about the Baha'i faith because the Baha'i faith has really grown more akin to the spirit of the Baha'i teachings in the so-called third world faster than it has in the developed world of Europe, European and American countries. We have Baha'i universities in South America. We've got Baha'i clinics all over the world. We've got institutions that are serving the people and serving the Baha'i community. In America, we're trained to be so individualistic and competitive. We like to help other people, but we don't work together to help ourselves. So that's something that I've been trying to bring back here is the cooperative mentality in business, in education, in housing, and so forth that I learned in the the so-called third world. So when you came back after your third child to the United States, did you go back to New York or did you go back to Florida? We went to Florida, to West Palm Beach. My wife hated it. I I figured she'd like it because it was hot. It was more similar to the Caribbean. And also we were close. We could get on a plane and hop back to the island to to visit easily. 
But what I forgot was how fast it is. You know, it's more like New York. You know, right. South Florida is so fast. <laughs> Complete opposite of the Caribbean. Still to this day, I've been out since 90 from the Caribbean. It's still hard for me to make appointments on time, to work more than eight hours a day. Right. I got used to the Caribbean lifestyle. And so she hated the fast pace down there. She couldn't get to know her neighbors. After half a year there, I said, I know a place that you'll love. And I took her up to Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute in South Carolina, near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For those of you who don't know who Lewis Gregory is, he was one of the early uh, African-American attorneys in this country at the turn of the 20th century, who was part of the talented 10th with W.E. Du Bois and other uh, renowned African-American scholars at the time, the top 10%, the cream of the crap of African-Americans. He became a Baha'i. And he gave up his lucrative law practice, and he married also interracially. He was one of the first, had a legal interracial marriage in this country, one of the early ones. He gave up his career to travel through the South to teach racial harmony. And so there's a Baha'i radio station and school institute named after Lewis Gregory in South Carolina near Myrtle Beach. I had been there before. That was where I took my wife. Of course, along the coast, they even speak something called Gullah. And it's a mixture of African, West Indian, and English because the slave ships went from Cape Verde off the coast of Africa to Barbados, dropped off some of their cargo, and then went up to Charleston, South Carolina. So there's direct cousins and very close family links between Barbados, Charleston, the area of South Carolina, and Africa. And so there's people that still practice the language and some of the cultural things called the Gullah people there. And so I took my wife there. And of course, you know, she understood their accent, so she loved it there. Mm. And so we moved there. Mm -hmm. And how long were you there for? Well, we moved around South Carolina and North Carolina from mm -hmm. 90 to 98. Mm -hmm. The reason why we moved around a lot was we were literally looking for the village to help raise our family, <laughs> a, a Baha'i community that was both child development oriented mm -hmm. and also was growth oriented. So what happened in 1998 that you left the Carolinas? One of our goals always was to open up a Baha'i school, an academic school. Mm -hmm. We homeschooled a lot. We never did find that community that wanted to do exactly what we wanted to do, and that was basically open up a Baha'i school. With eight children, well, at that time we probably had six or seven, we were a school already. Basically. Yeah. So we were looking for other like-minded people, not only Baha'is, but other spiritual people to, to do that with, and we were moving around. We heard of the purchase in Atlanta of a church property and school building for a Baha'i center. We contacted the community, and they knew about us, and they heard that we were looking to start a Baha'i school, so they said, well... We can help you fulfill your goal. So we came down, took a look, and were invited to be the first administrators of that Baha'i Center. They bought a caretaker's house next to the center, and our family became the first administrators and caretakers of that center. It's in South DeKalb County. Are you still doing that? No. We mm -hmm. did that for about a year and a half. That's a you know, it's an intense burnout type sure. of position. And so to get a break, we bought a little mini farm out in the country did our own thing mm -hmm. for, for a couple of years. But then it got lonely, <laughs> and so we moved to Tallahassee, where there were a couple of charter schools starting, and they invited us to become part of that. So we found out charter schools became pretty much like public schools, mm -hmm. except they took on the character of the teachers and the parents. 
And so we we moved back to Atlanta because in my profession, one of my many professions, but one of my professions had become marketing consulting. I had a lot of opportunities in Atlanta when I was here before. Mm. We just finally decided we're not going to find the holy grail. <laughs> Whatever we want to do, we're just going to settle somewhere and do it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did in 2002. We moved back to a suburb of Atlanta, and we've been there ever since. And it's the longest that we've lived in one place in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite an interesting story, Rich. Thank you very much. Oh, anytime. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rich Pellegrino, a Baha'i now living in Atlanta, Georgia, who became a Baha'i as a young man steeped in the hippie culture. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.